0: The second reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1. I will read uh, verses 6 through 13. You can find these on page 1 in your pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. And God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, for the favor that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. We thank you for making this world and making it well. We thank you for making us in your own image. Lord, we confess that we have fallen from grace. We have incurred your wrath. We have been born in sin and we have heaped up sins throughout the course of our lives. And yet you have shown mercy to us. You have sent us a redeemer to seek us out and to find us. The Lord Jesus, who is the word by which the worlds were created, also then became the sacrifice that paid for our sins. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you gave us a new birth internally, and you gave us faith so that we might be able to cling to Jesus as our hope. We thank you for gathering us this day. We thank you for the command to gather with your people on a weekly basis. And we ask that you would bless those who are here this day as we gather around your word and as we gather around your table. I pray that you would feed us in a deep way, that you would satisfy us in a deep way. Lord God, as we come to your scripture this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this room and in our hearts. We ask that we would hear a word from you. We pray that you would illuminate our minds and prepare our hearts To receive the truth that is embedded in Scripture. We thank you for your holy Scriptures, which are inerrant, which have been provided as a revelation for us, which teach us things that we could not know by natural means, by the senses or by the operation of reason alone. We thank you for your revelation, which is not unreasonable, but which goes beyond reason. And so we pray this day as we look into your word that we might hear your voice. And not the changing voices of the times that we live in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the sixth. Sermon in my series on the doctrine of creation. I wasn't really sure how long this series was going to last. We're not done yet. And I know some of you think that after you know six sermons, I should take a day of rest after this. But we, we may we may press on because I think that, I think there's more meat in this in this doctrine. Uh, we've talked uh, five weeks about uh, the doctrine of creation, and we uh, still haven't addressed. Uh, The question that's on a lot of people's minds, namely the age of the earth, what about those days, those six days of creation that are presented for us in, in the first chapter, are they six 24 hour days? Are they six ages of creation? Are they certain logical categories? The church, by the way, has talked about these things, not just in modern times, but also in ancient times. This was a matter of conversation. I've been using uh, this book by Christopher Watkins. It's called Thinking Through Creation. I bought a batch of these. You've taken all of them. If you want more, come talk to me. Uh, Christopher Watkins is a uh, uh, Cambridge-trained philosopher. He's a professor of philosophy at a university in Australia. Um, and he happens to be a Christian. And he's very interested in the doctrine of creation as a foundational uh, model for thinking about many things, and I found this book just terrific, and so I want to recommend it to you. It's written sort of at the undergraduate level. It is a, it's a challenging book, but not an impossible book. Uh, and so, if if you are interested in thinking about how the doctrine of creation shapes a lot of our understanding of other things in life, I would encourage uh, that you grab a, grab a copy uh, of, of this book as well. So, I want to talk about the uh, the age of the earth, um, when I was growing up, my grandmother's Bible, uh, in the center column, between the two columns, well in the, in what they call it, the margin between the two columns, at the top, uh, had a date on each of the pages. And the, the date indicated when those things, uh, happened. Those dates that were in, uh, the Bible that I grew up with, had been calculated by the bishop uh by bishop usher who was a 16th century uh churchman in ireland he was also uh a, more broadly a scholar of scripture and he by using both the uh, the accounts in uh in the bible itself of the ages of different people and adding things up and making these uh, stacking up the genealogies, but also comparing, uh, with what had been, what was known archaeologically at the time, he comes to the conclusion that creation began on the 23rd of October, 4004 BC, which happened to have been a Sunday. Now, the Jewish calendar, uh, is built on the idea that year zero is the year of creation, and so this year happens to be fifty seven eighty two in the Jewish calendar, and so that would make uh, creation having happened at thirty seven sixty one BC, a little bit a little bit younger than Bishop Usher's understanding of how old the Earth uh, had been. This is not a, a new speculation, but, uh, you know, given the fact that we have the Jewish calendar being an, an ancient form of timekeeping, it had been the impression of God's people for a very long time that the earth was something on the order of now about 6,000 years. Things begin to change, however, in the 18th century. There is a fellow by the name of the Count of Buffon. He's French. Count de Buffon. Uh, in 1779, he does a calculation of the age of the earth based upon uh, projections from uh, um, uh, the cooling. Of a, of a metal sphere that he's created. So he's made like a, a, a sphere, a globe out of metal. The understanding is, is that the earth is composed of metal and that it was hot at one time. And and so he heated up this ball of metal and he cooled it and he calculated how long it took to cool. And then he projected this onto the whole earth. And In 1779, he comes to the conclusion that the earth is about 75,000 years old. In the 19th century, Lord Kelvin, who is where we get the Kelvin temperature scale, um, and so this is 1862, the year after this church was founded, he conducts a similar kind of thought experiment regarding the cooling of the earth. I think his uh, calculations were a little more sophisticated than the count of Buffon, Uh, but he comes to the conclusion that the earth is about 100 million years old. So that's uh, 1862. And again, this is based upon thermal gradients, you know, when you go down into the earth, you see that it's hotter at the surface of the earth, it's cooler and then the sort of calculating backwards from how long it would take a sphere of this size to cool down from the imagined start temperature. In 1900, no one here was alive at that point, in 1900, uh, the Irish ge- uh, geologist, John Jolly, I think he's got a nice name, uh, he... he Calculates the age of the earth based upon salt concentrations in the ocean. Okay, I haven't read his study but this is based upon how salt accumulates in the ocean and he comes up with a figure of between 80 and 100 million years so somewhere close to what Lord Kelvin comes up with. Something changes dramatically, however, in the thinking in the scientific community around the turn of the 20th century with the discovery of radioactivity. One of the things that radioactive uh, elements do is they decay, they give off, uh, they give, they give off uh, particles, and one of the things they do is they also give off heat. Um, and so there was a recalculation of the age of the Earth based upon radioactive decay, recognizing that uh, in the Earth there were radioactive elements that were adding heat to the Earth all of the time, rather than it being a starting temperature and this decaying to neutral. Uh, and so in 1911, the published age of the Earth was 1.6. Billion years. Okay, this is so this is a really big jump. Okay, 1.6 billion years. Arthur Holmes, similarly in, in 1927, comes up with 1.6 to maybe three billion years. Uh, the current model of the age of the Earth uh, comes into place roughly by 1956. Claire Patterson is a U.S. Uh, geochemist uh, working with uh, uranium isotopes. And believe it or not, a meteor that landed in the western part of the United States comes up with, calculates the age of the earth at 4.5 billion years. Okay, Now, of course, this is just talking about the age of the earth. We're not yet talking about the age of the universe. Um, Interestingly, um, from the mid-19th century through the early 20th century, the view of physicists was what was called the steady state model, that the earth uh, is in a steady state, it's not getting larger, or it's not getting smaller, and therefore that the universe is eternal. Okay, Not just billions of years old, but that it's it's just eternal. Now interestingly, this is actually uh, an idea that the ancients had, the ancient Greeks, there were some ancient Greeks who thought that the, that the earth... That the universe was eternal, okay. So it's a return to an, an earlier idea there. So the, uh, uh, eternal earth. This also, this idea of an eternal universe appears actually in, in the Middle Ages. A Seeger of Brabant, uh, published a work called The Eternity of the World, uh, in 17, uh, in 1274. Three years later, he is condemned by the Pope, by the way. The Pope said, no, the the earth is not eternal. Uh, But this was the model up through the early part of the 20th century. Things begin to change uh, in the 20th century. Uh, All of you are familiar with the idea of the Big Big Bang. Uh, This term, Big Bang, uh, was actually coined by someone who did not uh, believe in the Big Bang, uh, a fellow by the name of Fred uh, Fred Hoyle. he actually was a steady state guy. Um, but he was characterizing, I think kind of in a flippant way that oh yeah, there are these other people who think that, just, like boom, it all came into being at one time. all right So the Big Bang theory is the, the kind of the, the current model, uh, Roger Penrose and uh, Stephen Hawking's Developed a lot of the math that's behind, uh, behind that model. Uh, and on the Big Bang model, the universe is around 14, a little shy of 14 billion years old, and the universe that is observable is about 28 billion light years across. Okay. So, this of course is a rather different description from what we see in scripture. The ancient, uh, Hebrews, uh, believing that the world was created in about 3700 BC, Bishop Usher uh, thinking, well, you know, maybe the date actually was 4000 and 4 BC, and so you see that in the 19th century and then into the 20th century, this becomes a real issue for the church. How are Christians who receive the Scriptures as the Word of God to understand uh, the age of the universe and the creation of the universe in light of what uh, the scientific community uh, is, is is telling us? What I'd like to do today is introduce two groups who are present in this room to each other. Okay. There are two groups present in this room today. Well, there's probably, there may be a third group too, but I'm only going to talk to the two groups. The third group that I'm not going to talk to are those who do not believe in creation. Okay? They're just... Well, you, I'll talk to you at the end. You can come to Jesus. Okay? And then once you come to Jesus... And you become you become a creationist. Then we'll talk about the different kinds of creationists we have in, in this room. There are young earth creationists. These are the people who believe in the creation of the world and think that it is, you know, roughly as Bishop Usher said it, you know, about 6,000 years ago, less than 10,000. There are old earth creationists also in this room. And these are people who think, yeah, God created the world clearly. He made it out of nothing, but he did it a really long time ago. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's that. A 2019 Gallup poll, in case you're curious about what the percentages are in this, in this room, you know, this is a case where I wish I had a kind of a technological bent that my wife has because she would have like an app on the phone where people could like uh, chime in on a, on a little uh, poll. Okay, uh, it'd be interesting to see, uh, how we break out in this room. But, but here's some data that might be interesting to you. In, in 2019, the Gallup organization did a poll. Here's the question, or here's the statement. God created humans pretty much in their present form at one time within the last 10,000 years. Do you agree with that or don't you? Okay, so let me read it again. God created humans pretty much in their present form at one time within the last ten thousand years. Now that would be a description of a young Earth creationist. Okay, forty percent of American adults fall into that category. Now, obviously, within the the realm of Christians, that number is going to go up, and then within the realm of evangelical Christians, that number is going to go up beyond beyond that. So, so 40% of American adults, at least in 2019, that's pre-COVID. Who knows what COVID did to us? Okay. Pre-COVID, 40% of American adults are young earth creationists. All right. So some of those are here. Uh, some of those are here in, in this room. There are also some old earth creationists uh, in this room as well. And I would like you to meet each other now, there's a second question that we're not going to talk about today, but we're going to talk about tomorrow, and that is the question of biological evolution. Uh, the age of the earth uh, is not necessarily connected to the question of evolution, but certainly evolution requires a long period of time. So you're all familiar with uh, the Darwinian model of evolution by natural selection it requires the passage of long periods of times for, uh, creatures to arrive at their present, uh, at their present, uh, at their present form. But we'll talk a little bit, uh, about that next week. Now those of you who are interested in digging into this a little bit more, if you've got a pencil, I want you to write down two names and you can go onto YouTube and see guys who are a lot smarter than me talk about this stuff. Alright? If you're interested in the young earth creation, model. I would ask that you look up a fellow by the name of Albert Mohler. M-O-H-L-E-R. Albert Mohler. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a regular on the the speaker circuit uh, throughout the evangelical world. So Albert Mohler is a young earth creationist. Um, He has a, a very interesting talk that he gave a couple of years ago uh, not so much on the science or the philosophy, but rather on the theological implications of the doctrine of a young earth. Okay, uh, we'll talk. We'll touch on that just a little bit at the end of, of my comments this morning. If you're interested in the old Earth creation model, there is a very interesting uh, British uh, um, mathematician by the name of John Lennox. I would encourage you to look up. L E N N O X John Lennox fascinating uh man who uh, is you know is a, is a born again Christian uh believes that the that the universe is 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 old um, but uh is very clear on the necessity of a doctrine of 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 a special creation not only of the universe but also of life and then of human life and then he says that the next the next intervention was the Virgin Birth and the Resurrection. Okay, so these are these are all uh, uh, identical doctrines uh, in his mind. So his name is John Lennox. So let me talk a little bit about the young Earth creation model. Here's what I would say about the young Earth creation model. Everybody was a young Earth creationist 200 years ago. Okay, it's just what everybody believed in the Western world. Okay, our, our e- even atheists believed that the world that the world, uh, that the world was, that the world was young. Okay. Um, so in some sense it was, uh, uh, what was, what was normal. It, it has the advantage of providing a literal reading of the account in Genesis one. There's a, a discussion about six days and, uh, one of the ways that we use the word day is to mean a 24-hour period. And so uh, in that sense, it, it allows you to have a literal uh, uh, reading. Theologically, the young earth creation model is uh, important because it avoids the question of what about death and suffering before the fall? Okay? The Bible teaches that death came into the world through one one man, Adam, right? And so, if you have an old Earth model, you, you know you have to you, you got to solve that question of like, well, what about all those people who died, or all those you know whales who died, or all those dinosaurs who died before the fall? How could there be how could there be death before the fall? And so, the young Earth creation model. Uh, eliminates that problem. In Bishop Usher's uh, uh, chronology of the history of the world, uh, he'll, he tells you that that the fall happened on November 10th, 4004 B.C. Okay? That's not on the church calendar, by the way. Okay, November 10th, fall day. Uh, so, but... <laughs> There might be some church out there that's got the fall day, but 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 he calculates that day. So so for the young earth model it's not a problem. For the old earth model, it's 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 a real problem that needs to be that needs to be dealt with. The uh old earth creationists um reads Genesis one as what I talked about last week, as retrospective prophecy. Okay, uh, that it's true, but in some sense that it is symbolic or metaphorical. We read this morning a prophecy uh, uh, from Daniel, uh, from Daniel chapter seven, a beautiful uh, image, uh, kind of a Trinitarian view in the Old Testament uh, of of the of God, uh, the Ancient of Days. And let me read a little bit f- uh, f- uh, for you. Uh, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued uh, from it and came out before it. So we know that God doesn't have hair because he doesn't have a body. All right, God is spirit. And so when we read that prophecy of Daniel, we understand that he's using an image that helps us grasp some truth about who God is, and and we don't have a problem at all in reading prospective prophecy, prophecy that looks to the fu- future as containing these images. And so, if we understand the book of Re- uh, the book of Genesis in the first two chapters to be a retrospective prophecy, Moses is the prophet. He has a vision of what happened in past time, vision given to him by God. Those who read it this way then would have no problem in reading that in some kind of metaphorical or allegorical way. The other advantage of the old earth creationist is that it does avoid a conflict between what scripture teaches and what our senses and reason tell us okay what natural sciences tell us the natural sciences uh you know observe uh, the universe and try to make conclusions about how the thing fits together um, and uh on the old earth creation it conforms to what the natural sciences say it avoids also the question of well let me raise one other issue so now so how is it that then the young earth creationists are able to square the biblical account with what the natural sciences observe currently the the view of the natural sciences is that the earth is about you know, four and a half billion years old. The universe is about 14 billion years old. How is it that I square those two things? Because the one is based upon the observation. It looks like the earth looks like it's four and a half billion years old. There are all these different reasons that indicate why it would be four and a half billion years old. How do I square that with what the scripture is telling me that it's only 6,000 years old? And the solution that the young earth creationists come up with is they say that the earth looks old. We're not going to deny that. We're not going to deny the description that the natural sciences have offered. The earth looks old, but it's actually young. Okay? Looks old, but really is young. That God made it look old. And one way to think about this is to think about Adam. On the day Adam was created, how old was he? Well, he was a newborn. He was one day old. Was he a fetus? Was he an infant? Was he a toddler? Was he a teenager? I don't, I mean, how do you picture him? I picture him as a full-grown man. Okay? I mean, because he got in trouble like within the second week. All right? So, he's he he's young, but he looks old. He looks like he's got 25 years behind him. Because that's how he was made. All right? So the young earth creationists is saying, well, the whole universe is this way. The whole universe is, is made full-blown. And it looks like it has a history. In fact, it's only 6,000 years old, but it looks like it has its history. So that's, that's how the young earth creationists deal with the question of things looking old. So uh, a young earth creationist has no problem uh, in agreeing with uh, natural scientists who say, well, you know, the earth appears to be this old. Say, yeah, well, it appears to be that old, but it's not. Okay? Just like Adam. Adam in the second week on earth, he's two weeks old. He looks like he's 25. All right? Is that that clear to you? Okay. Now, on the old earth creation side, which takes the world to, in fact, be as old as it looks to be, it avoids the question, uh, it avoids having to answer the question of, why would God make things look different than they really are? Why would, why would God configure the world in a way that it looks like it's really old but it's really young? Okay? And so, the, the old earth creationists, they don't have to answer that question. That's not a problem for them. Okay? Young earth creationists are gonna to need to think about that. Why would God do that? Alright? Now, let me throw in a little bit of church history just to, you know, make this really complex. So, um... In, um, in American Presbyterianism, Princeton Seminary, until 1929, was the bulwark of Orthodox teaching. And one of the great teachers there was a fellow by the name of B.B. Warfield. He died in 1921. He uh, as a, he was a student at Princeton College as an undergraduate, and he studied mathematics and natural sciences. And he then went off to Europe to do some uh, graduate studies in the natural sciences. And while he was in Europe, uh, he received a special call from God to the ministry. And so, surprisingly, I mean, he thought he was going to be a natural scientist. Surprisingly, he ends up going uh, and being a Presbyterian minister. And then at some point, he becomes a professor at Princeton Seminary. And he is uh, the man who really formulates the modern doctrine of biblical inerrancy. B.B. Warfield believed the Bible is 100% true when it's understood in its plain sense. Here's what B.B. B. B. Warfield, um, well, let me say a little bit more than I'm, let me quote him. So B.B. Warfield is living during that time, and he's a professor during the time when the church in America is really wrestling in a big way with the question of the age of the earth. I mean, this is really a post-Civil War issue. Christians before the Civil War weren't asking, this wasn't a problem for them, but then all of a sudden the sciences were coming up uh, with uh, theories that were saying that the earth is older than what they had been believing all along, and this becomes a problem for the church in the post-Civil War period, uh, and it c- kind of reaches a crisis point uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Warfield's living through the heart of this. Okay. And so, I'm not going to go into his theory, but just let me uh, give a brief quote from him to let you know where he comes out on this. This is in 1888. The Grand Defender of ortho- Presbyterian Orthodoxy and Biblical Inerrancy at Princeton Seminary. He writes, I do not think that there is any general statement in the Bible or any part of the account of creation either as given in Genesis 1 or 2 or elsewhere alluded to that need be opposed to evolution. Okay, now that might be a little bit of a surprise for you but but so here's a biblical inerrantist who actually thinks that the biblical account is not in conflict with the natural sciences of, of the time. Now, um, I just wanted to introduce the two different groups uh, in, in, the, in, in the congregation to each other, the Young Earth Creationists and the Old Earth Creationists. You can chat afterwards uh, about this. Um, what's important to me is that you be a creationist, that you understand that there is an event that happened that is unique and unreproducible. It is a singularity. It's a one-time event. Natural sciences don't like one-time events. all right. But there are a number of one-time events, and one of them is the creation of the world. And it defies the capacity of the human mind to explain. It is an indemonstrable beginning point. It is an indemonstrable first Principle. I think there is a sense of this, although I see the natural scientists avoiding the question in the Big Bang that there is a limit to knowability. Even in the, the, the modern model of the creation of the world, the Big Bang model looks an awful lot like creation. There's an event that's like different than every other event in, in the history of the universe. It's called the Big Bang. It's it, it's different because the laws begin then. Alright? It's a singularity. The Bible presents several singularities. One of them is the creation of the stuff of the world. We read that in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. That was that undifferentiated mess that we were talking about before. After that, we then have the days of creation where God begins to form those things. But in the beginning, there is this singularity. Something comes out of nothing. We're going to see another singularity when God creates life. And we'll see another singularity when God creates the human soul. Unreproducible. One-time events. That start everything subsequent, okay? Uh, and the natural sciences can no more answer the question of why the Big Bang than of why life or why why the soul. So, um, John Lennox, by the way, also thinks that it similar. The other similarities, the other singularities, are uh, the the um, the virgin birth and and the resurrection. Each of these is a profound mystery. And by a mystery, I mean, it's something that is beyond explanation. We can't deny that the world is here. Uh, it's here. But we can't explain why it's here from natural causes either. Natural sciences are very good at explaining how one event is linked to the next event. It is incapable of saying, why is the whole thing here? Why is there something rather than nothing? One of the fundamental principles of the natural sciences is called Occam's Razor, that the simpler explanation is the truer explanation. The, the simpler explanation would be that there would be nothing. The fact that there's this big, crazy universe is, is, should, should surprise us. Okay. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And I think as we understand the universe more and more fully with the passage of time, I think it should just blow our mind more and more. I think we should be like just like flabbergasted. I think we need to be willing to ask the questions that you'll see the natural sciences shying away from. Like, why is this whole thing here? Why is it so darn beautiful? How is it that life is so special? How is it that human consciousness and the soul is unique? Where are all those other intelligences in the universe? Why haven't we heard from them? Let's ask those questions. I believe in special creation. I believe that God made this world out of nothing. And then he began to work on it. And then he made life uniquely as a jump from inorganic creation. And then he made the human soul uniquely as something beyond anything else uh, in human life. And then the day came when God became a human. All right? The incarnation, I think, is is, is the next part of that mystery. Oh, man. John was supposed to do this. Or, is that why you're standing up? See? I told him. You know, I'm preaching too long. You need to cut it off. All right. Uh, what's that? All right. So, uh... <laughs> Uh, let, let me let me just close with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the Heidelberg Catechism. Father God, uh, we we just marvel at you, and we we worship you this day. And I ask that our voice would join together with the voices uh, of the heavens in declaring uh, your glory. You alone are God, and you made this place, and 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 we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Alright, we're going to rush here.
0: The Heidelberg Catechism. Please join me in confessing what it is that we believe as Christians using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the second petition in the Lord's Prayer mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve your church and make it grow. Destroy the devil's work Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. Amen. Amen.